Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the July 8th, 2019 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine. The world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, but now proudly including the queer and intersex communities in our mission statement. I'm Vosh Bodhi. And I'm Wenzel Jones. Tonight, we devote a good chunk of our show to a conversation between two very special ladies. Anne Stockwell, former editor-in-chief of The Advocate magazine, talking to Hollywood icon Patricia Resnick, the writer behind the film 9 to 5, who is now involved in the Netflix Tales of the City reboot. But first, The Honest Tea. Hey, Wenzel, it's so good to be here with you on The Honest Tea. I know, I know. Is this your first Honest Tea? You've done this before, haven't you? It's been a while. Once before, but it's been a while. It has been. Yeah. And and you come packed with stories and information. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Because what you and Abby do, it's like it's so exciting to be here with you. So I want to just jump in because I'm super excited about the fact that we now have another state other than California Mm -hmm. that is looking to ban gender normalizing surgeries Mm -hmm. on intersex children, the state of Connecticut. Is this what used to be called gender reassignment surgery? Or I mean, it goes through many, many... Basically, when you're born with sexually ambiguous genitals and they decide, oh, that's a boy, that's a girl. That's what we're talking about. That's exactly what we're talking about. Because what considers someone to be intersex is someone who has variations in sexual characteristics, Mm -hmm. including chromosomes, gonads, Mm. or sex hormones, even genitals that don't fit with the norm. So usually when those children are born, what happens is the doctor... Mm suggests to the parents that they have this surgery that makes that child one thing or another. Right. And usually they choose to assign these babies to be right. girls, right. not taking into account that things will change when they get older. Right. Well, and because you can't really build male genitals if you don't have something to work with. Yeah. Normally they assign okay. these children sex at birth. Right. And Connecticut has joined the ranks as being the second state in the United States to well, now, actually try to ban. So what happens then? Do you, do you have to wait till the child is a certain age? I mean, what is the age of consent when it comes to surgery? Because surely you don't need to wait till the child is 18, do you? Well, they want to make sure that the child is actually of an age where they can actually consent mm-hmm. to being assigned some gender, which makes perfect sense. Well, I mean, it makes perfect sense, but a child can't enter into a contract. So what would the age be, I wonder? And that is part of the controversy. People People want to know, well, at what age will this be, Yeah, you know, because they have to put that in as part of the law. I mean, you, there could be yeah. some sort of a test where you can say, do you want to live with mommy or daddy? Or do you want to be a boy or girl? Or we could just leave them intersex and leave it at that. Is that also an option on the table? Or, or is the thinking generally that, well, we're going to do an assignment, but we just have to wait till later in a child's life? This is a really interesting question, because what this conversation is doing, mm-hmm. meaning stopping these gender normalizing mm-hmm. surgeries is it's opening the door for right. people to actually just be intersex. Right. And it's kind of blowing the door wide open right. because now all of a sudden people have to have this conversation about, well, what is intersex? Are right. you intersex? Well, and there was a big uh, thing during Pride Week in the New York Times, and it was a whole page full of people who identify as intersex or gender neutral or sexually non-binary or whatever. But they all had their own story and they all had a very different story But they were all perfectly okay. Well, not perfectly okay. Some of them were still figuring things out. But generally, they had decided that they were not going to to conform to one or the other, and they were fine with that, and that's who they are. And that really isn't an option that anybody in my generation would have had. We didn't have a concept of you're not a boy or a girl. You're somewhere in between. Exactly, which is why this is so mm-hmm. like revolutionary. Because I don't know if you watch YouTube, there is just this explosion mm-hmm. of people doing these gender announcement ceremonies when they're pregnant and letting everyone I'm so know. glad my friends stopped having babies before that happened. It <laughs> sounds insufferable. 
It is. And being an intersex advocate, mm-hmm. every time I see one of those, it's like a stab in my heart because yeah. I think, what if one of my friends who's intersex, mm-hmm. their parents did this and we're yeah. expecting a boy or a girl and then they show up. I right. mean, the barrier to them accepting their child is monumental. Yeah. Well, and it just seems like an extension of you've got the wedding industry and then you've got the baby industry. And it's just another way to get people to go out and spend money and have an event and and plus, yeah, it doesn't sound really bad if you have a big gender reveal and you say, it's a girl, and then later on down the line, it turns out, maybe not. And yet, here we have this videotape that all the family's been watching for years and laughing at, oh, did we ever wear our hair that way? That's crazy. Okay. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a, I, I want that trend to stop, which is unrelated to intersexuality, I know. Exactly. Well, I mean, but yet it, it so mm-hmm. is. I mean, they're going to have to stop unless they have these things that say, oh, it's, we don't know, like yes. it's blue and green. Why does everybody just wait till the child is born? You know, why do you have to have this gender reveal? They used to just coyly blush and tell you what the baby was going to be if they wanted you to know. Mm-hmm. The the whole idea of staging it as an event, it's well, it's just irritating. But now, so Connecticut follows California. Are there other states who have also made this sort of surgery illegal without consent or not states within the United States, uh-huh. but Malta as a country uh-huh. has actually done this. And who thinks of Malta? And Tasmania. <laughs> Tasmania. <laughs> I just, I, I, how random these countries seem. It seems really bizarre yeah. that these random countries would do this. But, you know, sometimes inspiration to do great things comes from far away. Well, let's hope the move takes foot or whatever the phrase is and, and that we hear more and more states are, because it does sound like something that needs to happen and something that uh, really probably a lot of us don't think about. Exactly, which is why it's going to make a lot of people have to talk about it because it's it's a big it's a big thing for us to then recognize yeah. that there are intersex people on the planet and that yeah. there are not two genders. We've right. known about intersex characteristics, the XXX chromosome right, pattern right, right, right. and the XXY yeah. since 1959. Yeah, and the, and there are cultures that make room for intersex people to live. Unfortunately, ours is not one of them. Well, the Native Americans used to call them two spirits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've sort of dumbed that down to just sort of incorporate just trans, that yeah. it was just people who were trans. Yeah. But imagine having a child come out that had ambiguous genitalia that right. looked like it was both. Well, there you would call that a two spirit. Yeah. So I think it was already way more intersex before we thought about yeah. what intersex was. But now we have a term. We have people that are out and about, and we want to make sure we take care of them. Well, let's keep our eye on this one then. Yes, indeed. I well, here's a surprisingly good news. I don't know uh, how much it's going to weigh in the end. But there is a case coming up before the Supreme Court. It's two gay men and one trans woman. And I don't know if they've combined cases or what. But the point is, they are saying that they were fired for being gay or trans. And that is illegal, according to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, because Title VII bans sex discrimination. And by extension, it should cover them. Okay. The Trump administration says, oh, no, it doesn't. So this case is very important, and a group of Republicans, none of them in Congress, alas, have filed an amicus brief saying that, yes, it should extend itself to cover gay, lesbian, transsexual, because we do not have those federal protections that everybody thinks we do. Right. And the Equality Act has passed the House of Representatives, but we know how much luck that's going to have in the Senate, and I believe the president said he was going to veto it anyway. So this is looking up that, oh, oh, and one of my favorite parts, um, among the signers is Fred Carger, who we've had on the show many times. And as we keep reminding people, he was the first out gay presidential candidate. 
And Meg Whitman, of all people, she's now the president and CEO of eBay, but she ran for governor of California here quite a little while back. A little while back, yeah. Not the kind of person you would expect to say, yes, let's open it up. And Ken Melman, who was W's 2004 campaign manager and later came out as gay. So, I know. So this is very, very positive. And apparently the argument they're making is based on an argument from former, well, are you former just because you're dead? But Scalia. And, and it says that he said the text of law plainly applies or does not apply by its very words and the understanding that even if the legislation down the road doesn't see these particular circumstances arising. So it makes sense in a conservative way. And I, I'm just I'm glad to read it. I do not know what all of it means, though, because I don't you know, it's like. I know what an amicus brief is, but I don't know how much weight it carries. And there are so many briefs being filed before this case. I love that so much of Abby has rubbed off on you. I, well, yeah, I can say amicus. <laughs> <laughs> and what was the other one? Uh, Steerostasis. I've already forgotten it. Starry decisis. Starry decisis. That's it. Yeah. Which was fabulous. So, yeah, but yeah, but yeah, we need Abby here to go all legal wonky on us because yeah, the, the finer points I don't know, but the the overview I think is it's a positive thing, and we don't usually have super positive things on the T. Especially when it involves Republicans yeah. stepping up and standing up for the LGBTQIA community. Yeah, and Republicans, you would not expect to take that position. And so let's hope there's more of this because every day is a new horror in this administration. I can't take much more of it. Where they're stamping up and sort of you know, trying to yeah. stomp out rights yeah. for LGBTQIA people. And speaking of horrors, I don't know how I was unaware of this person, but Judd Deere, who is a deputy press secretary in this administration and a gay man, did an interview with BuzzFeed. And this is not to shame Judd Deere. Okay. He's pretty much taking care of that himself. <laughs> but just some of the things that he was saying were that um, the idea that the administration is anti-LGBTQ is just a smear campaign. A smear campaign. He says this. Mm -hmm. He said the Equality Act is filled with poison pills and shouldn't pass because it actually says that you cannot discriminate against people on the basis of your religious belief. Imagine it says you can't discriminate, which is the whole point of the, the act. He said if uh, he went to a cake shop and they wouldn't serve him because he was gay, he'd just go to another cake shop. <laughs> that, that's the issue. And, and my favorite part was, uh, oh, Trans troops erode military readiness, which nobody in the military ever said during that entire time. And my sister-in-law, who is a Navy Reserve nurse, was very involved with trans troops. And they were all up and running and on board. And then the band came down and they were looking at each other going, what? What? So he's making blanket statements. He, Yeah, he is sitting there as a game. And, and, oh, the other thing, he says there's no discrimination at the White House, which reminded me of that classical joke, what is a fag? The homosexual gentleman who just left the room. Of course, he doesn't see discrimination. Exactly. But don't tell me it's not there. Right. So this is where he's coming from. And what I'm wondering is what is it about any gay people at this stage who are still on board and why would somebody so completely subsume themselves to an administration that is so nakedly, transparently hostile to the LGBTQ community? What is it in people that makes that happen? And I, I'm confused as how he doesn't see that a trans military ban is mm -hmm. actually a policy against the yeah. LGBT yeah. community. Yeah. Is power really, I mean, the, the cliche is power corrupts absolutely, but is it that corrupting? 
I mean, th- it's not as if you, you have to search very far to see what he's done to the LGBTQ community. And yet here we have a gay man saying, oh, no, it's a, it's a smear campaign. It's all made up. You guys, you guys, oh, liberals, you are the ones who are, who are so prejudicial. <laughs> Isn't that like the Stockholm syndrome? It it is it is kind of you just you fall in love with your, not fall but you you just become enraptured by your captor and you make excuses for everything they do and I I am baffled absolutely baffled by this person but I didn't even know about him had you heard about him before I had never heard about him until you sent me this story and you know I look at his picture and I just wonder is this one of those things where white cis Men, mm-hmm. gay men, mm-hmm. can't see the world outside of their own perspective. I mean, although we're LGBTQ, I, right, right. Uh, I'm gay, so therefore yeah. I'm okay. It's not affecting me. Yeah. Everything's okay. Is I mean, yeah. It's, this has taken log cabin, which always kind of confused me because that that's the gay Republican group. It's taken log cabin and then ramped it up exponentially to sit there and, and justify and excuse or say it's simply not happening or you don't understand it. Now, when they did this study to find out that trans people were so mm-hmm. you know bad for the military, did they ask any military people to say anything? No, there was no problem in the military. The military seemed to be, I was surprised when it was happening, how receptive the military was. Also, I didn't know there were that many trans troops and I grew up in the military. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. But I thought maybe we're talking about 30, 40 people. No, it's thousands, thousands of people. Wow. And the military did not have a problem with them. And the people I know in the military who actually dealt with the issue said no. But it's it all started with that stupid tweet from Trump. Wow. Everything you know? starts with a stupid tweet. I know. Trump. It's not official policy. It's not presented as a bill. It's just some dumb tweet. And then he, and then he sticks by it. Wow. And now look at the mess he's made of that. I didn't know that you grew up in a military environment. So did I. I did. My dad was in the Navy. My dad worked for the Navy. I grew up in Subic. So let's say hi to all oh of our... Oh, my gosh. I, was so, I know. I was so jealous because all those kids who got to go to um, the Philippines and Japan, because we were mostly in Europe. And we were jealous of you guys because yeah. you got better candy. So we didn't, we didn't get closer. Than, we got to Hawaii, but mm-hmm. that was as close to Asia as we got. So anyway, and oh, look, here's some uh, straight white people. Well, I don't know that they're all white, but uh, they're they're victims again. This is about the Pride Parade, which is taking place in Boston. And uh, uh, this is my favorite part. The organizing group is called Super Fun Happy America. (laughs) That is about the gayest name for a group I can imagine. (laughs) But anyway, they have been receiving envelopes in the mail, and they think, oh, it's, it's anthrax. It sounds like there's dust in there or something. And it turned out to be... Glitter. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and, and I thought, well, they probably should have sent it in window envelopes, but then nobody would ever open the silly thing. That's hilarious. But John Hugo, who is the president of Superfund Happy America, says, well, even if it's nothing, it's terrorism as far as I'm concerned. It's like, how do you go from glitter envelopes to terrorism? Oh, white, you're victims because you're, you're straight people. And someone sending you glitter. Glitter. To perhaps throw at your festival to make it more fabulous, because how fabulous can a straight pride parade be without some gay folks in it? Well, and it's not as if note cards with glitter don't get mailed every day just because that's the way they're constructed. Yes, indeed. I put glitter in envelopes I send to people I love all the time, so it was a love <laughs> But yeah, it's immediately they went to, I'm the victim, this is terrorism, I won't stand for it, and by the way, Super, Fappy, Hun, Super Fun Happy America apparently has ties to Proud Boy. 
the white supremacist group. Okay. And guess who the Grand Marshal is going to be of this parade? Milo Yiannopoulos. Wait, isn't... Yes. He the, he's the big stirrer-upper guy who actually doesn't really like the gay community. Yeah, the gay guy who doesn't like... Maybe he knows Judd Deere. I was going to go and ask <laughs> you that same question. <laughs> Are they the same person? I know. Yeah, yeah, because he's gay, he's married, but he doesn't believe in marriage equality. He's married to... A man. Okay. But he was the gay person who became the darling of the right wing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's like two of the same story now that we look at this. If they call a black person who sucks up to white Mm -hmm. people an Uncle Tom, what do we call a gay person who sucks up to the straight community? An anti-mame? I, ooh, no, don't. No, 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 we can't. No, no, that name is sacred. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. That's a good question. Why don't we as a culture have a name for that? Because, I mean, it didn't just start happening. Mm -hmm. There have always been people who would, happily stay in the closet, happily not come out at work, just to get along and not be looked at as being different. But yeah, I don't know. There must be a name out there. We must come up with something. If anybody knows, email it to us. (laughs) Exactly. Post it on our Facebook page. Let us know what you think we should call. Yeah. And then Milo Yiannopoulos as the Grand Marshal. So it's like, it's a straight pride, but we're going to put a gay man who's got no gay pride. There's just so many layers of wrong going on there. It really is. And it also begins with uh, the name of this group, Super Fun Happy, Happy America. America. If that's not like 1984 doublespeak, I, I don't know. really know what is. I know. Well, it's one of those innocuous titles that always make you think, there's somebody behind this who's unsavory. And a little unstable. I know. But, you know, I do have to say, I think every group mm. should have a pride. Oh, yeah. And everyone should be able to come to it. White pride, black pride, well, Irish pride. But the thing about straight pride is straight pride makes sense if there was such a thing as straight shame. But there is no such thing as straight shame. Mm-hmm. Nobody was ever killed for being straight. Nobody was ever denied work for being straight. Nobody was ever thrown out of their apartment for being straight. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what pride events are. It's mm-hmm. saying we are visible. We are taking yeah. back. We are taking back. We are taking our space in this culture as mm-hmm. equal people. Yeah. But for straight people to do that. I mean, what what was their beef? Yeah, I I get you. I get you. But I mean, because, you know, we know that pride stands for personal rights through defense and education. Not everyone knows that. So I do edu- not know that. Yes, that's what pride stands for. <laughs> Another acronym to yes, memorize. Indeed. Uh, I even looked up the difference between an acronym and initialism. Initialism? An a- initialism. <laughs> LGBTQIA is an initialism. Initialism, okay. And pride yeah. is an acronym. Because pride makes a word you can say. Exactly. LGBTQ, I will never get a word out of that. No, no. Well, we could. We'd have to move it around. But then that's, I know. You know, that's like playing. Uh, uh, so, yeah. and to end on a, a, a fluffy note, uh, there was a family who had booked passage on a virgin flight from London to New York. And they booked this last September, September mm-hmm. 2018. And in October, uh, Virgin called them and said, you know what? This flight is going to be dedicated as the Pride flight to uh, commemorate the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. Okay. So are, you know, so do you want to change? But because of their schedule and everything, they said, no, no, no. You know, we, we can't change it. So this family gets on, and it is nothing but drag queens and Judy Garland sing-along and drag queen bingo and... <laughs> A whole pride parade uh, yeah. on the flight. Yeah, yeah. Lady, a Lady Gaga impersonator going up and down the aisle singing. And the video is adorable. The kids are practically wetting themselves. <laughs> They're having so much fun. And the man says, the eight hours just flew by. <laughs> <laughs> Although when I look at the video, I 
a part of me wants to hope that it, they were still on the ground because everybody is out of their seat. <laughs> it really looked like a party of all parties. I mean, really, all they had to do was really land, yeah. turn around and go back home because everyone has had the best celebration. Yeah, I think you'd be completely partied out because they always seem, because I know the, the ad for that, they show these drag queens as flight attendants. And I always wonder, do they really have drag queens as flight attendants? Because in a safety situation, that doesn't sound like the best idea. Right. <laughs> you know, you, you need somebody with the ability to move and drag is not about your personal comfort. So Or hair. That or, or hair, exactly. <laughs> you don't want flammable hair. You do not. But uh, yeah, it was just, it was such a cute story and the family had such a good time and I thought this is one of, it, it was so positive, so upbeat and we need those. We need those silly stories. Ann Stockwell is a former editor-in-chief of The Advocate magazine, and in a special What's My Story, she talks to Hollywood icon Patricia Resnick, a writer on Mad Men and the Netflix Tales of the City reboot, who is perhaps best known as the writer of the iconic 1980 film 9 to 5. I'm Ann Stockwell. I'm delighted to be here with screenwriter and Hollywood legend, Patricia Resnick. Let me just recap a couple of your credits. You started out in 1978 with a wedding, working with Robert Altman. Yes. In 1980, you wrote the iconic comedy 9 to 5. Yep. Then you went on to write the libretto of the musical 9 to 5. Much later, yes. You worked on the final season of Mad Men. I did. And just now we can look at, on Netflix, Armistead Maupin's Tales of the City. Absolutely. I want to talk about some other things, too, but let's start with Tales of the City, which I just finished and which I enjoyed. What was your involvement with the project and how did it come to you? So I was co-executive producer, which means I was a member of the writers' rooms on television series. You see endless producer credits, and I know everybody's like, what? Why is everybody a producer? But in television, you usually have a couple of non-writing producers who actually produce. And then the writers, uh, the upper-level writers, all have various supervising producer, executive producer, co-executive producer. So I was in the writer's room. I think there were six of us, plus Lauren Morelli, who was the showrunner. And... I had heard that they were going to do a contemporary version of Tales of the City. I'd always loved Tales. I really wanted to be involved. And a very old friend of mine, Alan Poole, was producing. And I got in touch with him and I asked if I could be considered for it. It's a process. You get your script in and you have to work your way up through the ranks. And then if the showrunner likes it, you eventually meet with the showrunner and then they decide how they want to put their room together. So I'm very happy that I got to be a part of it. So you wrote a spec script? No, they just read a script sample, having nothing to do with the show. You you try to go through the things that you've written that are originals that have a feel of what you're trying to get hired on, a tone of what you're trying to get hired on. That's what they read, and then they decide whether they want to meet with you. So, for example, oddly enough, I used the same script of mine for Tales of the City and for the show I'm working on now, which is in a fantastic show called Better Things, which is Pamela Adlon, and that's on FX. So I use the same sample as different as those shows are. Why remake Tales now? 
I mean, first of all, there are a lot of people who are going to see this Tales that never saw the original. So if you could talk a little bit about what did it mean in the first place, this story? What did we want it to mean now? In the writer's room, it meant different things to different people. The other writers were much younger than I am and came from very different backgrounds. We had two New York playwrights, one of whom is South Korean. We had a fantastic American black writer who had done TV but also did plays. They ranged from, I don't know, I think early 30s to maybe 40. And some of them were very aware of tales. Some of them had never heard of tales. For me, when it first came out and uh, I was reading it, we had just finished filming a wedding. I was driving from Chicago where we shot to Florida where I was originally from to see my family. I was driving with my first girlfriend and we had gotten the book and whoever was not driving, we took turns reading it aloud to each other. And it was the first piece that I'd ever read that dealt with being gay with some humor and lightness and life and everybody wasn't like killing themselves. And so it always had a place in my heart. And that's why I wanted to get involved in it. So the original tales dealt with queer life with some lightness and humor. What did you want from this iteration of the story? So by setting it now, and again, you know, this this was a show I worked on. It was not my show. But I think we all were very much in agreement that we wanted to try to cover the spectrum of queer life, to talk more deeply about some things that in the earlier iterations, it was made for television in the 90s. One season was for PBS and one season was for Showtime. And even since the 90s till now, so many things have changed. And so one of the writers in the room is trans, and we were able to go much more deeply into the story of being trans. You know, originally they had the animatrical character, and that was groundbreaking at the time. I mean, the 70s to have a trans character. But now we wanted to have her, but also talk about, we talked about a younger a man who, prior to transition, had been a lesbian and how that affected his girlfriend and also how he also, uh, along with his gender, he started to question his sexuality. So we wanted to deal with that. We wanted to look at the world now, San Francisco. We didn't want to spend a ton of time on the tech stuff because that's not our story, but obviously it's a very expensive city to live in now. There's a lot of pressure on people to find places to live. We wanted to deal with that. And then we just, we wanted to just tell a story of um, not just queer life, but also uh, the lead character played by Laura Linney is straight. We wanted to talk about her relationship with her ex-husband, her relationship with the child she left behind, who's now an adult, who's played by Ellen Page. So there's a lot to say. One thing, it's throwing you a little bit of a curveball, but I think about it all the time. Here we are at this point in our culture, and we, our number of uh, initials in our series to describe ourselves continues to expand. And I watch people now 
on the presidential debate stage and so on, I can see them trying to get every initial right. They completely lose their point that they were going to make afterward because if they stumble on one of our initials, they're going to look homophobic. Right. All of that is to ask you, when are we going to end up with one word that describes us all and what's the word? I mean, I feel like the word is queer. It's interesting because... I learned a lot being in the Tales writer's room. I think everybody in the room did because we only know our own experience. So the two gay men in the room learned a lot about what it's like to be a lesbian. We all learned a little bit more about what it's like to be trans. Two of the women in the room I would have called bisexual. They call themselves queer. I feel weird referring to myself as queer. I have no problem with anyone else. The word I like to use for myself is actually gay. That's just what I'm the most comfortable with. But what was explained to me, and I kind of loved, because I kept saying to them, well, why queer? What, like, Why are we using that word? Why are you saying you're queer as opposed to you're gay or you're a lesbian or you're bi? And what they explained to me is that, for example, our writer's room, if we had said, oh, it's a gay writer's room, Well, that wouldn't have been true because, first of all, the writer who's trans, he's married to a a woman, so he's straight. And um, the two women who I would have called bi, one is in a very serious relationship with a woman and one is engaged currently to a man. But by saying queer, it covered everybody in the room. So I've now adopted that for everything but when I'm just referring to myself. I understand. It's a relief to have one syllable. Yeah, that's a lot of letters. If nothing (laughs) else, yeah. After the break, more What's My Story with Patricia Resnick. Stick around. We'll be right back. Finding Gay Books, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. In the 1950s, it was nearly impossible to find books on homosexuality. The downtown bookstores on Main Street just didn't have them. Local libraries often locked them away behind closed doors. It wasn't until 1967 that the Oscar Wilde Bookshop opened its door in New York City. Founded by Craig Rodwell, it sold books by gay authors. But according to an ad in the April 1957 issue, One Magazine, you could find homosexual-themed books at Village Theatre Center Bookshop in New York City's Greenwich Village during the 1950s. The ad read, We issue regular catalogs of novels, plays, and poetry on homosexual themes, both recently published and out of print. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Pat Fishback. Hi, I'm Chaz Bono and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Out loud and proud since 1974. IMRU I'm Vosh Bodhi. I'm Wenzel Jones, and you're listening to IMRU Radio. Now, back to Ann Stockwell in conversation with Patricia Resnick. In Hollywood, is it more disadvantageous to be a woman or a lesbian? I think being a female is still disadvantageous. Possibly, if you're going to be a woman, maybe being a lesbian, I don't know if it really helps you, but at least it gets you out of the pile of, 
here's just a bunch of women. So if you're a lesbian, then maybe, especially in terms of working in a writer's room, you would have a slightly different view of things. Your life experiences might be a little bit better. I think now there definitely is a group of lesbian women in Hollywood who are writers and directors who all seem to know each other and be supportive of each other. And I think that's great. I'm not really part of that, just a function of when and where I grew up, where I am in my in my life. I have kids, but my kids are well into their 20s. I'm in a different life stage than they are. But absolutely, if you look at the Writers Guild, if you look at the Directors Guild, and you look at the percentage of women in the membership, it's very low. If you look at numbers of roles written for females as opposed to males every year in TV and movies, still very low. How does a queer writer get noticed, seen, produced? Is it still really just a white male decision-making system that's evaluating all the stories we're trying to tell? Well, I definitely think that it's still the vast majority of people in power positions and and the decision makers do tend to be white males. It's getting a little bit better. My last two showrunners have both been women, one straight, one gay. And that's been, for me, a wonderful experience. I'm sure there's terrible female showrunners, but my experience has been both Pamela Adlon and Lauren Morelli were just incredible to work for and with. I think as far as starting out, It's kind of the same, whatever your sexuality is. It's really the same. It's just, it's a hard business to get in. It's a hard business to stay in. I don't think of myself as a queer writer. I think of myself as a writer. Sometimes it figures in what I'm writing. Sometimes it doesn't. You know, it just completely depends on what I'm working on. I speak at lots of places and young people always ask about getting an agent and getting in. And it's the same questions that I asked when I was at USC a million years ago. And everyone's story is different. Tell us how you got in. I went to USC, majored in film for my last two years of college. I grew up in Miami Beach, Florida, where at that time there was very little show business, which I was in love with. And so um, when I moved here, whenever I would see trucks indicating filming, I would always pull over and walk over and try to watch and see what they were doing. And I would ask who was directing and who was in it. And I was driving in Westwood one day and I saw some trucks and I pulled over and I asked those questions and it turned out it was a Robert Altman film. And he was definitely one of my heroes. And so I waited around on the sidewalk until he came out of the building that they were filming in. And I told him that I was going to write a paper on him for one of my classes and asked if I could interview him for the paper which he let me do. And um, when I finished the paper, I dropped it off. And I think about a week later, he called me and he said he wanted to hire me, which was unbelievable. Now it took a year, which was fine because I got to finish college. And then um, he'd gotten a movie set up and he wanted to hire me, but he couldn't pay me. And I was graduating and my dad had said that he would pay for my college, but once I graduated, I was on my own. So I went to the American Film Institute and got into their internship program, and they gave me a stipend for 90 days to work for him. And then I just made sure, as best I could, that by the end of the 90 days, I would be indispensable enough that he would have to keep me on. How'd you do that? What was your strategy to become (laughs) indispensable? 
I just tried to fill like any holes or gaps that I saw. So my job was really just the assistant to the publicist. So all I was really supposed to do was write the actors' bios and go with them when they were being interviewed and things like that. But because I would go with them, I actually, you know, I got to know some of them. And so I really like actors. I admire what they do. A lot of people in other parts of show business don't like actors. But I guess because I do, I became close to them. And so the one thing I can think of, the particular thing was we were filming on a First Nations reservation in Calgary, Canada. It was called Buffalo Bill and the Indians with Paul Newman and Burt Lancaster and Harvey Keitel and just Geraldine Chaplin, amazing people. And after the summer, we were still filming. It was really cold. And the tents were just freezing where they had to change. So the First Nations people were so cold because they didn't have any heaters in their tents. And Harvey had a little heater and a backup heater in case his heater broke. And so I went to him and I talked him out of his backup heater. And um, got it to the First Nations people, so they had a heater. And I promised Harvey, who, by the way, was an incredibly nice guy. I promised him if his heater broke, I'd bring back the backup heater. But I would just stupid things like that, where by the end of it, I honestly don't remember really other things that I did, but he kept me on. So I read in a, an interview that I was given to prep with you that sometime in that time period, you wrote some sketches for Lily Tomlin show, Appearing Nightly. So that was just after that. So after a wedding, was it after a wedding? No, sorry. It was before a wedding. So I was working for Altman. I desperately wanted to write. I had written a spec script. I could not get him to read it. His right-hand person, a woman named Scott Bushnell, had read it and kept trying to get him to read it. And he was producing a movie that Lily Tomlin was in. And... um Altman at that time was not directing, so I didn't have really very much to do. I was just hanging around. So I was hanging around on the set. It was called The Late Show, the movie. Isn't that funny? It's Lily Tomlin and Art Carney. Um, and a cat. Yeah, yes. So Lily was improving a lot of her lines, and she would sort of call out to the set in general, you know, what could I say here? And I started yelling answers back. And that led to her finding out who I was, eventually asking me to write a sketch for her. She was going to do a Broadway show. Then I wrote a couple sketches. Then Altman went to see the Broadway show. And then he said, he used to call me the kid. He was like, ah, the kid can write. And that's what led to me working on a wedding. I would like to talk to you for five hours about Robert Altman because he's yeah. certainly, he's the reason that I do what I do. He was, he, he was amazing. Of course, lots yeah. of people don't know who he was or what he did. If you could sum up in a sentence, I know you can't, but if yeah. you could, what did he do to change filmmaking in America? First of all, he did very specific things, like he would have multiple people on camera talking at the same time, which was not done. In fact, a whole sound system was invented where he was able to mic multiple people and adjust their levels. But a lot of what he did was tell stories that were not the sort of general ABC. You have the lead, and this happens, and then that happens, and then there's a turn, and then that happens. And he would follow multiple stories, multiple characters. The secondary and tertiary characters 
were always as interesting as the primary characters. I still struggle with this all these years later when I'm writing. I cannot tell you how often I get studio notes, network notes, too many characters, cut down the characters. You know, if I have a line in a hospital about my leads, I'll have a little scene with the nurses that have nothing to do with them. Still, people are sort of like, why are we hearing from the nurses? Well, why shouldn't we hear from the nurses? So I think that's what he did. And then the way he made movies was very revolutionary. He had everybody involved on location for the three months or whatever it took. And it was sort of like summer camp for adults. And he very much welcomed people to actors could come up with ideas, a craft service could come up with ideas, writers, anybody. And so everybody felt really like this was their movie. Everyone was invested. You really felt like a family in a way that groups on a long-running television show do. But he was so inclusive. It was a really wonderful way to work. How long after that was it a little while that you did 9 to 5? Just a couple of years. And again, for all our friends who are, you know, have never seen that film and don't know what it meant, 9 to 5 was, what, 1980, right? Yes. In the height of the first of our big business revolutions. Right. Everybody was wearing shoulder pads and this frizzy hair, and women were in the workplace, and money was good all of a sudden. Yep. Greed is good, right? right? Michael Douglas was saying greed is good. Yeah. So into this comes this idea, 9 to 5. I think Jane Fonda started to put this project together, but I don't know. How did it come to be, and how did you come to write it? I'm Vosh Bodhi. And I'm Wenzel Jones. And you're listening to a conversation between Ann Stockwell and Patricia Resnick. So my involvement was I read in one of the trade papers, Jane Fonda wanted to make a movie about secretaries with Lily Tomlin and Dolly Parton. So we've already covered my relationship with Lily. Dolly, I had met briefly when I, I wrote a piece for a Cher special. I wrote a sketch for Cher and her guest, who was Dolly. And I was there when they filmed it. And so I knew Dolly a little bit. I was a big fan of Jane Fonda's. And so I thought, well, I'm the perfect person for this. I decided. I asked my agent to find out if there was a writer. Yet there wasn't. Jane and I happened to be at the time with the same agency. We were able to get her, you know, a script or two to read. I already had the Altman and then Tomlin credits. And I met with her, and she gave me this giant pile of very serious statistics about clerical workers. But she wanted it to be a comedy because she felt that she could make the point she wanted to make about women in the world of the office, it would be more palatable if it was a comedy. And so I went off then to come up with a story, which was they would be three secretaries with the worst boss in the world, and they would actually try to kill him. That's how it started. And uh, we went and pitched it to 20th Century Fox, and we just moved forward from there. Let me just ask you this. Yeah. Do you like the movie? That's so funny. You know, it's been so long. The first time I saw it, it was really tough for me because it's kind of like you have a kid, right? And the kid gets to be like seven or eight years old. And then someone comes and takes the kid and sends them off to military school. And you don't see the kid for a long time. And the kid comes home and their head is shaved and they're all in a uniform and they're saluting. And you're kind of like, it's kind of my kid. Under there somewhere is my kid. 
So the first time I saw it, it was like very tough. And then honestly, for years, I think I struggled with other people loving it more than I did because I still mourned for my version, which, you know, I never got to see. Plenty of it was left. I got Soul Story and Shared Screenplay. So the writers who adjudicated credit certainly felt my story was basically still there. And then what happens is over the years, you know what I mean, you sort of soften up and I saw how much it meant to people, how much joy it brought people. And then I felt that I, in a certain way, regained ownership of it for myself when Dolly and I did the musical in 2009 because Colin had passed away and theatrical rights actually go to story, not screenplay. So it would have been mine to do the book which is the play part, the spoken part. So I got to relook at it. Now, again, I couldn't make gigantic changes. I couldn't go back to them trying to kill him because, I mean, I could have, but people had certain expectations. But now I, I've learned to love it again, and it's running on the West End in London right now. It's doing great. It was only supposed to go to August. It was extended till April. There's a tour that's going through Great Britain, and I got to go for a month while we were getting ready to open. And I got to sit there every night and just hear people laughing and having a wonderful time. And that meant a lot to me. I saw Lily and Jane recently. They were on The Ellen Show, actually. Mm -hmm. And they suggested that there's a sequel in the works. Are you writing that? I was writing it with Rashida Jones. I actually put it together. I started thinking about a year ago during Me Too this is actually really the time to do it. And there's a lot going on in offices now that's actually worse. People don't have benefits anymore. People are permanent temps. There's HR. You can go to HR. Often HR's hand is tied. And we now, you know, it's now clear because of Me Too how much sexual harassment is still going on. So I decided to set it now put three young women in the office place of today and then have them hook up with Lily, Dolly, and Jane. And I thought that it would be good to have a younger writer of color work with me. So we got Rashida. And I am sad to say that because Disney bought Fox, it recently was just killed. So I That's can't horrifying. tell you why or how. I don't know if it's just not in the Disney world, if it's not family enough. So they own the underlying rights, Fox does, and Disney owns Fox. So unless something changes drastically, we did work very hard on it, but I think it's done. I'm so sorry to hear no, that. We've got the musical, which is nice. So I figured in the gig economy, I wanted to see Lily driving for Uber. That's, <laughs> That's a very funny idea. Well, if anybody's listening, you know, revive it on that basis, yeah, please. Yeah, I love that. Let's talk for a minute about Mad Men. Which, again, really changed the game. Yeah. So you came in on the final season of Mad Men. Right. What does it mean? You were a consulting producer. I don't know what that means. What does that mean? It can mean a lot of different things on a lot of different shows, honestly. What happened with me was I had never worked in a writer's room. The first half of my career, I had written movies, primarily by myself. Then I spent a number of years writing television movies by myself. That whole business died for a while. Then I spent about five years on and off on the book for the musical with various 
workshops and out of town and, and all of that. I worked on an animated show. You know, I was supporting two kids on my own, and I was doing whatever I could to keep us going. I had never considered staffing on a television show because you can't do it from home. You go to work every day for a number of hours, depending on the show. It could be 10 to 6, 10 to 7. It could be 10 to 11. It depends on the show. And as a single parent, I didn't want to be gone that much. But uh, right before the before Mad Men, my older child, my daughter, had already gone to college. My younger child, my son, was in 11th grade. And by that point, they go in their room and don't want to see you much anyway. And I suddenly thought, oh, you know, I could staff on a TV show if somebody would hire me. Because that's usually you start early and you work your way up the ladder. So I was like, I've got to get somebody who can think a little bit out of the box. And I had heard Matt Weiner was looking for a female writer for the last season. He was an acquaintance. His oldest son and my son were in school together. And so I emailed him and I just asked if my script could go into the pile that Fox was going to read and then it was going to go to Lionsgate and see if it ever moved up to him. So that happened. And then they decided they needed for that last season to hire somebody who had some experience in the room, but he wanted to hire me. So he hired me as a consulting producer, which on that show meant I came in two to three days a week. Robert Town, who wrote Chinatown and half of the best movies ever written, was also a consulting producer. We just came in and we were in the room and we would add our ideas, thoughts, as the season was worked out. And that's what I did on that show. I think I was a consulting producer on my next show, too. I'm not sure exactly. I, I think for me, it's because I didn't come up that ladder in the writer's room. I came in through the side. So I had so many credits. You couldn't start me as a lower level writer. On the other hand, I didn't have a lot of time in the writer's room. So now I've kind of worked my way. Now I'm a co-EP. The next show I was on, I actually got to be, you know, I got to do a script. And, and on Mad Men, I really didn't, I didn't get to do that. But I learned an incredible amount that was an amazing room to start on. And I was such a fan of the show. And I think Matt is so smart. And every writer in that room, it was one of the most erudite rooms I've ever been in. So it was a great, great place to just start learning how to work in a writer's room. What was the next series that you got to write a script on? It's so all over the place. I think the next thing I worked on was an ABC family show called Recovery Road, which only lasted a season, but was also a really interesting show for me to work on because it dealt with addiction and recovery and um, something I've had personal experience with over the years. And I felt I had stories to tell about that and was glad to get a chance to tell those stories. And I also ended up making some very, very close friends on that show. That doesn't always happen that have stayed friends. You know, I've worked on, I think I'm on my sixth. Tales was an amazing room to work on because it was an LGBT room. I'd certainly never had that experience. And it was also an extremely cohesive room. Everybody happened to get along. I think when showrunners put together a room, they almost have to cast the room if they're smart. 
So hopefully you get people that are more interested in making the show good than in their ego or being competitive, which can happen. Most of the rooms I've been in, that has not been the situation, but you become friendly with people who have worked on lots of other rooms, and I've heard lots of different stories. And the room I'm in now, the Better Things room, is also just incredibly warm, friendly, fun room to be in. But you have to learn to work with other people as opposed to being a movie writer where you just sit in a room by yourself. Very different skill set. I really have wondered about that a lot. My experience as a journalist is, you know, my first three drafts were completely just chicken scratch. They never made any sense at all, and I doubted my own sanity until something would come together about the fourth time around. Right. And other people's feedback was just essential in that process. When you're writing a movie, who tells you? Everyone. (laughs) Everyone tells you. You get notes. You get so many notes. You have producers who give you notes often before the studio ever sees it. You've rewritten it based on your producer's notes. If you have a director attached, you'll get director notes. If you have stars attached, you'll get notes from them. Then it goes into the studio. Then you're going to get lots of notes from the studio. So you get lots and lots and lots and lots of notes. The real question is you have to work out what are the good notes from the bad notes. Sometimes you think a note is not a good note. You have to fight it. But even if it's an original that you brought to them, you're now a hired hand and you can be fired. I'll give you one little clue to understanding how much this happens. When you go to see a movie, if you see between two writers' names an ampersand, that means they're a writing team. If you see an A-N-D, that means somebody came in and rewrote somebody else. And many times you'll see multiple A-N-Ds. It's almost just the way it is now that feature scripts are They'll be done, you know, somebody will be given it. If a guy wrote it, they decide, oh, the female roles are flat. Someone will be given it. A woman will be given it to do a female pass. Or somebody might do a youth pass. You know, if the writer is in their 40s, they might give it to somebody in their 20s to do a youth pass on it. So getting feedback is not a problem. It's getting good feedback that's a problem. I remember Carrie Fisher used to say she would get called in to punch up the girl. yes. All the time. I want to be sure that we talk about the issue of ageism in the business mm-hmm. as well as all the other isms. Right. You wrote a very widely seen piece in 2016 taking the Academy to task for elevating you, if you want, I guess kicking you upstairs to emeritus status rather than voting status. Right. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So the Academy in its struggles to make the Academy more diverse, it's still, I don't even know what, 80-something percent white males, but they're really struggling to make it more diverse. But one of their first ideas, which I think they didn't think through, was, well, if we take everybody over a certain age and we kick them up to emeritus so they can't vote, it'll get a bunch of the old white guys out and make room for newer diverse people. And my feeling was like, okay, well, you're casting this very wide net. You're also kicking out, you know, I'm a female and I'm a gay female, so you're getting rid of me. You're also making the assumption that once people hit a certain age, they don't go to the movies anymore. I have to tell you, when I go to screenings at the Academy, I feel young. 
it's mostly really elderly people, but they're the ones going. I don't see young people at the screenings. They're not there. So we all have ways now of watching a lot of the movies at home, but there's something to be said about watching them on a big screen with good sound with other people. Anyway, I felt like they were trying to do the right thing the wrong way, and they did walk that back, by the way. Are you voting now? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, that's a great place for us to end. I have so enjoyed this. Thank, Thank you, you very much, Patricia Resnick. Long creative life to you, you, and I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Okay, that's it for tonight. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, and our director of podcast distribution, Vash Bodhi. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. Email us at volunteer at imruradio.org. And a reminder, because we're a global podcast, as well as a show broadcast by the station, you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org during any hiatus from the over-the-air schedule during Fun Drive. And you can catch us on podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Stitcher, Anchor FM, and Overcast. Good night. Good night.